0: I-94 on Lumpin' Radio.
1: Good morning once again from Studio B in beautiful downtown Bridgeport. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio, and this is I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined today by Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack. How are you doing, gentlemen?
0: All right. How are you doing, Jamie?
1: Doing great. Doing excellent, great. Excellent. We've got a special guest in the studio today, but before we do, want to go down some, some uh, regular business this episode is being taped live on August 27th 2017 I-94 of course can be heard every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock it also can be heard on repeat every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock and of course all our episodes are available as a podcast on iTunes, on iTunes I should say right there's more than one tune on the app store yes. uh, you can also listen to it on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com slash lumpen radio we also want to uh, let everybody know that uh, our I-94 live was so successful with Ann Elizabeth Moore that we're going to be doing it again if you we're catching this broadcast on First Run. Please feel free to join us on Thursday, August 31st at Pills and Community Books at 7 o'clock for a special edition of I-94 Live. That will be aired on repeat, uh, I believe it is on September 3rd. Is my math correct on that? Is that uh, the Sunday or is it September 2nd? No, One, two,
0: three. You got it. September
1: yeah, 3rd. September so September 4th. So that so will uh, that'll be just before Labor Day. That's a special edition uh, of I-94 Live at Pills and Community Books. More information on that is, of course, on our website and at pilsencommunitybooks.org. Without further ado, I want to kick this show off. We have a special guest, and today we are going to be speaking with the author of a number of books, including the one that is in my hot little hand called Buckskin Cocaine. We are joined now by Erica T. Worth. Erica, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having
1: me. We've got a number of readings that we're gonna to get to in a moment, but first of all, wanna talk we've you've written a number of books, all of us have read different ones. Erica, why don't we start with this one because it's the closest to me and because I'm talking the most at the moment. Tell us a little bit about this book and what inspired you to write it. Take our readers who obviously cannot see the book because this is radio, what's going on in it?
2: Buckskin cocaine is sort of about the seedy underside of the Native American film world. <clears throat> I wanted to write a book. Um, I don't know I wasn't particularly driven one way or another but if I think about it I wanted to write a book that just didn't approach Native issues um, in any way shape or form like anything had been done before because um, I'd spent a year as a guest writer at the Institute of American Indian Arts and I'd hung out with a lot of obviously other writers and the parallel to the writing world is there in the book but um, I hung with a lot of the film guys sort of dated a director um, hung out with a lot of what I call buckskin actors And um, the film world is obviously brutal, and the writing world is obviously brutal, but the native film world is perhaps like the most brutal thing I've ever seen. People have to hustle. Um, Actors who both of their parents might be native have to dye their hair darker, they'll tan. They'll do anything to get the very few jobs um, that they get where they're never almost allowed to wear anything but buckskin. And the directors are just hustling and hustling and hustling every day and every night to get some kind of money to produce a film that might, you know, in some way reflect anything contemporary about Native life. And so everything that's really brutal and horrible about the film world, it's like quadruple in the Native film world. And so I wanted to write a little bit about the personalities in that world.
1: Let's just back up a second, because I, I don't think many of our listeners, I certainly don't know much about a Native American film world at all. I mean, are you speaking about Native American actors that want to appear in Hollywood films? Or are we talking about productions that are exclusively done by Native American tribes that are, I mean, for consumption by Native Americans? Because this is a totally new world for us.
2: Um, I don't know. There are a few, like, I guess they're, that's complicated the way you asked it. You know, it's all intertwined because um, there are, we are maybe two million people, right, in the on the continent, or not on the continent, in North America, and so our film world, our art world is incredibly small. So all of the Hollywood Indians, all of those guys hang out with um, the Native directors who aren't producing anything necessarily for public consumption for their tribe or by their tribe but just like any other director they have an individual vision um, they might want to write about like Sterling Harjo did um, Four Sheets to the Wind and it's just about a guy from Oklahoma who decided to get off um, his family's territory and decided to go to the city and see what that was going to be like and it's all about how he finds out you know kind of who he is in relationship to his family and how his family drags him back but also how his family kind of helps him to know who he is and he loves them still. So, you know, all those guys hang out with one another. It's all intertwined because the Hollywood Indians, honestly, they wanna be in a film where they, it's produced, written, um, and directed by a native person so that they can just be a human being for once, wearing jeans. So, yeah.
1: That's very interesting. I, mean, I, yeah, I don't think we, any of us know anything about that at all.
3: No, it was interesting, too, because I read some of your essays. Um, I can't think of the name of the blog, but it's a feminist blog. Right, right. You had several. um, And one of the things you were talking about is pretendians.
2: Right, right. And
3: I had no idea that that was something where people pretend to be Native American. Um, And I, I, I read that. And then in another one of your essays, you talked about some Native science fiction writers. And one of them that I was curious about and I want to ask you about I believe the author's last name is Hausman is that correct yes he wrote the book about it's a uh, alternative take on the trail of tears yes um I was I I, I I don't know if I told you when we were talking I'm a librarian I work for Chicago Public Library I ordered the book and I ordered it for my collection as well but I wanted to talk um one of the things that we like to explore on the show is learning about new literature obviously mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could take us in. If it's something you don't know a ton about, that's fine too. But can you tell us a little bit about native science fiction writing? Um, I was, yeah. um, you mentioned the two writers in the essay and the houseman, and, and the other one's escaping me. I have it written down, but I'd like to hear a little bit about that because this is a genre I'm unfamiliar with.
2: The nonfiction is interesting because I know it's some folks like first love and they like get MFAs in it, but it's just something I've been solicited for. And I had a piece <coughs> in the writer's chronicle and then the piece in publishes weekly. And so after those things, like, people really started to solicit me, and I started writing about that. The whole Pretendian phenomenon is very odd, because being Native American means you're Native in a country where, obviously, like, there's been genocide. And so what we are is, like, within a human being, extremely gray and strange. But there are, you you know, 60% of Americans will claim to be part Cherokee, you know. And there are people who really take that incredibly seriously. And the problem is, what people know about Native Americans is so bizarre and so strange. Like, you know, Chicago has a very large Native population, has an Indian center. Yes, but, yeah. right, people just, yeah. you know, almost don't see us. They either think, you know, maybe perhaps are Mexican, which those people are Native, or they think perhaps we're Italian, and we get sort of ignored. So that's, you know, that's what I was talking about is the problem is, like, within all that, the problem is there's a lot of gray territory, people who are mixed, people who are from reservations, people who are white passing. You know, I mean, there's a whole plethora of issues that I like to address, you know, in my nonfiction, especially in that one. But as far as native science fiction goes, you know, I am a big fan of and write primarily literary realism. I just like it. Um, I think it it forces you to, if you take all the cops and spaceships and detectives away, you're kind of forced with the everyday reality and you have to pay attention to language and to characterization and, you know, theoretically to structure if you're going to show something beautiful. And, but that said, you know, I was a kid who read fantasy and then I read horror and then I read sci-fi before I I read any of that. And I started to see what was, was popping up, which was Daniel Wilson's robo He's a Cherokee citizen actually, um, and of his nation. And he just wrote these phenomenal books that nobody knows, nobody in the native literary world talks about because they're, you know, they have robots and really people, I think, in the big press world, which he publishes with, they don't even know he's native. And yet he has these great native characters. Blake Hausman is just a genius.
3: I didn't know he was native. I have those that robo-collection at the library, and I had no idea that he was native. And I didn't until I was researching for this show. I didn't know streaming – Stephen Graham Jones was either. He's of the Blackfeet tribe. Yeah. And oh, yes. And yeah. We've, we've, we've talked about his book on the show. Before. Yeah, we've covered some of his mm-hmm. books on the show. And mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. we did talk about it and I forgot, but I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Oh, it's okay. No, Daniel Wilson, Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen loves horror. He's just one of those guys who's just so, so great. I know, I mean, the Indian world is so small, I know them all. And Stephen actually blurred buckskin cocaine. And I, you know, I was really flattered that he did that. Blake Hausman um, is published with a small press that's now defunct. He was with Bison
1: um, Press, right?
2: No, he was with um, the Native Story, Storyer series, I think, and that was out of University of Nebraska. And Gerald, <clears throat> Gerald Visner and Diane Glance used to run it. The reason I think he was with a small press, though, is because it's just so clearly—it's to me—it's a phenomenal read. Like you can't help but just go right through it. Um, but it's also just clearly brainy. It's all about, like, what would happen in the very near future if the Cherokee Nation decided to have a digital recreation of The Trail of Tears and what would happen if that went haywire. And it's just – it's such a compelling read. And it really just – the characters are so interesting and strange. And the whole thing is just this lovely, weird concept. Well, should mention that t- book
1: is called Riding the Trail of Tears. That's okay. right.
2: By Blake Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because – one of the things I really like about this show is the the links we can sometimes make to to literature I didn't know about. In your <coughs> earlier novel, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, you mentioned in the acknowledgments that you owed a debt to Eden Robinson and Susan Power, two authors I had never heard of before. Can you talk a little bit about their work and, and how it influenced you? They're
2: like the unofficial queens of Canadian and American literature, Native American literature. Obviously, people know Alexi. People know Louisa Erdrich; they're really prolific, and they're great. And I can see why people like them. I do too. But Eden Robinson, she wrote *Monkey Beach*, um, and it was just this huge phenomenon in the '90s. And she's funny, and she's weird, and she's dark. She sometimes her book uh, *Blood Sports* is a little Stephen Graham Jones, and I'm really close to her. Her book was sort of a YA *Monkey Beach*, but it was like, you know, before YA had to be categorized in this little tiny thing. Um, not that it's not interesting and varied and diverse in its way, but Susan Power, her big book was, um, and is still the grass dancer.
0: She's from Chicago, yeah?
2: Exactly. And her mother, you know, um, was a huge figure in Native American, um, politics in Chicago and Susan's from here and she comes here once in a while. And, uh, so a lot of her book actually, if I remember correctly, it takes place in Chicago. So.
0: I just want to mention real quick for, for readers that are interested in, in Native literature, there's a... There's a great bookstore. I, had a, I was lucky to get there in Minneapolis called Birchbark Books. Um, I think Louise Erdrich is part owner in it. But you can go online there um, and, and check out um, the Native Lit scene.
2: Yeah, and that's where Susan lives now. And so we, she oh, took okay. me there, and all the Erdrichs own that bookstore. And I actually read with my friend Linda Grover, who's another. Um, the Dance Boots is one of her books. And she's another just phenomenal short story writer. She's won all these awards because she's just just great. So.
1: Well, we've been talking a lot about other writers. We should take a pause and hear something that you've written. Uh Uh, So this is an excerpt from Buckskin Cocaine. As always, we want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company for our backing music. This is a segment, in fact, about one of those filmmakers uh, who discovers that his girlfriend is pregnant.
4: She introduced me to her friends. They were all writers, and they all smoked and read their work at Gypsy Cafe on Thursdays. She took me to thrift stores, and I told her I'd gone to those all my life that or gotten hand-me-downs, but she showed me how to really look through everything. Got me these big blocky glasses that looked like they were government issue, but she told me I looked good in them. I remember looking in the mirror at a thrift shop one day in a pea green cardigan she'd gotten me to buy. The mirror was one of those old weird warped ones with gold marbling all over. She was standing behind me and telling me how cool I looked and I felt like I was going to flood out of my body, back into it, and then maybe into hers. And then she leaned forward and into me and I closed my eyes and that's exactly what I did, my body humming with electricity. Nights, she'd just stand at those big old wooden windows in my place, the brown paint peeling off the frame, her head holding the light, her white feet bare on the wood, the record player we bought at a thrift store together blowing something slow and jazzy out days I thought about how bright her hair looked as the sun came up when she would go for her first cigarette in the morning. That's when she got pregnant. When she told me, I'd just gotten home from a long day and all I wanted was to wash the coffee smell off me and turn on the TV. When I opened the door to the bathroom, she was sitting on the toilet and crying. It took me 30 minutes to get it out of her. When she told me, I was so happy I figured she was only crying because she'd figured that I'd be really unhappy about it and she'd stop when I told her that wasn't the case, that I couldn't wait to have a baby with her. But that wasn't it at all. She started shaking and screaming and she threw the tester, the thing sailing out of the bathroom and into the living room. She kept screaming, what about me? What about my life? We spent nights arguing, taking turns crying smoking. I would pull the American spirits out of her mouth as soon as she lit them, this making her furious, causing her to hit me in the arms hard. About two weeks into this, I came home one night of the blowing snow. The walk had been miserable, and work had been nonstop. I had Chinese takeout in my hands, and as I unlocked the door, I thought for sure she would be gone, that she was somewhere getting rid of the baby, having someone cut it out of her. I walked in, my chucks squeaking on the floor, imagining the horror of it, but there she was, sitting on the couch. I stopped and put the takeout down. She smiled and I knew. She stood up and fell into me and I thought it would be like a wipe with the last few weeks moving aside and making room for our new, better lives as parents.
1: And that was a reading from Buckskin Cocaine by Erica Wirth. And we want to, always, as always, thank the voice of God here at the station and International Anthem. Erica, take us through that scene.
2: Yeah, it's incredibly strange to actually hear someone else reading it in this sort of, like, very cool, hip, you know, calm monotone, you know. And I'm sort of this, like, animated human. Um, Yeah, you know, that particular character, um, he's gotten a lot of attention for his film. Um, He's just from a small town. And suddenly like, you know, natives know his name, he's getting excited and he's hanging out with this other guy who's kind of wild and who just really ultimately has no boundaries whatsoever. And you know, they're being invited to all these parties, they're meeting famous people, people they've seen on TV that are gonna really impress people from back home and they're just going nuts. And they've been doing it for a while. And in that particular scene, he's having a flashback um, because one of the ways in which he decides, like, well, I'm still a human being. I'm still a person is to say, well, I'm a parent of a child and I loved someone once. But there are reasons why I can't do that anymore and why my life is like it is now. And that's okay. And so he's thinking about um, this girlfriend he had. It was his first sort of introduction into something hipper or cooler or white, to be honest with you. And um, she that's a, can I just interrupt you. That,
1: that's an interesting thing. Talk a little bit about that. Why Why do you say white to be cooler? Because that that's a that's an interesting and sort of revealing way that your characters think about themselves in relationship to other races. Because I'm not sure that necessarily other races would say the same thing, would they? Would Would we say like. It's hip to be would would like I guess would a white person say well it's hip to be Jewish or be Jewish or you know I mean I mean that's a really interesting and revealing way that talks a little bit about the systemic racism that Native Americans have suffered.
2: I think that pop culture is um, a you know capitalist phenomenon and unfortunately it knows exactly how to get into us and take all the things about us that are really interesting and you know poop them back out (laughs) in a consumable (laughs) form. And obviously white culture borrows so heavily from black culture, and I think they think they're borrowing from native culture and they think they're being innocuous about it, but they're just sort of pooping out a really terrible version of it. You know, natives are statistically speaking not to capitulate to any poverty porn, but you know, a fairly impoverished group. And so I think that we just simply don't have access to things that other people have access to. So any, any sense of being access to you know, um, to things outside of our smaller worlds that, you know, might get us things just simply, even just humanity, I think matter. But it it does seem very distant. I know even for myself, and I'm not from a reservation, I wanna make that abundantly clear. I'm very urban for a couple generations my family's been. But even for me growing up in the country and not, you know, before the internet, just any kind of sense of like, this outside world was so, so big.
3: I want to mention too. Um, in some of the interviews I read with you, Erica, you discussed that you didn't want to write this, like, uh, like a Native spiritual on the reservation. I think the way you phrased it. I, I don't think you use the word spiritual, but I think you know what I mean. And so you're just trying to write about people, and I, you know, like you were saying, you know, wear blue jeans, get up and go to work, and you know, they're just people. Like, and I think in American culture, and rather it be white or whatever culture in general. You know, that's what we think of. Like, my first exposure as a child, besides, like, some of the, like, (laughs) like the racist children's books, like Indian in the Cupboard and, you know, portrayals in Hollywood, but was Vision Quest. Um, And uh, I actually love that book, and I love that. Is that – do you know if that was written by a native? I'm sure it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's about the wrestling. But I remember when I saw that movie, I was just like, oh, man, that's so rad. Um, But it brings up a good point, and it's, you know, we tend to – what's the word I'm looking for? Mythologize. Yeah, mythologize culture. You know, uh, not all black people in Chicago are gangsters, and not all white people are Wall Street brokers, and not all Native Americans are on vision quests all the time, you know, <laughs> and it's just, um, and I, I, I like that, you know, that you talk about that because, you know, we tend to compartmentalize culture, and and you were saying earlier we pick and choose, you know, what we think is Native culture, and I, I, I'm still... Uh, I'm still a little blown away by the pretendee, and I didn't know people claimed <laughs> that they were Native American. And I also read, you know, when I was researching the show about the, you know, we talk about a lot about cop killings in, in, in Chicago, but the Native culture, it's way higher than any other group, and that kind of blew my mind, too. I had no idea.
2: I think that um You know, people from, I just want to make it also clear like, there are people from reservations who do or do not speak their language, and they certainly wear blue jeans. It's not like you step on a res and it's like immediately some alternate experience. It's just a place where people, you know, if they were lucky, they got to keep a part of their traditional land. So when people refer to that as just like a prison, that is not true. You know, it's a place where, you know, you could be on the Apache reservation and you could be like part to Ono. Um, part Mexican, you know, you you might be a hip hop artist, you see what I'm saying? So and then off the res, it's not like there's this vacuum, you know, Denver, Chicago, Minneapolis, Winnipeg in Canada, these are places of high Native concentration. And I grew up with people who were speaking Lakota, or Navajo, or even like Anishinaabe. So you know, and the Pretendian thing, it just only makes sense. You know, it's a country where We've been, you know, people tried to eliminate us and, you know, people kind of think they have this this part of it left. And, you know, to have to, to store a stereotype of culture, again, it makes it palatable for consumption. And I think as far as um, all of us being, you know, sort of ignored in those regards in terms of how many of us die from from police brutality or our poverty rates or our education, Yeah, we're a small group, but I think it's somewhat intentional, you know, to imagine that, oh, here are these pretendians. Well, it doesn't matter because all these people aren't real Indians anymore anyway. And so we're kind of like smushed under the rug in that way.
1: Well, I mean, isn't there also kind of a a flattening? Everybody kind of thinks that Native Americans are all the same. There's actually, what, 200, 300 different tribes all with different traditions and different languages, which I don't think people necessarily think about at all, you know, and they're very different histories and very different beliefs and very different, pretty much everything.
2: That's in Oklahoma alone. I yeah. think now there are um, is it 600 federally recognized tribes. And that's a problem. People don't know that we are government entities. You know, everything that we do is in relationship to the government, bad or good. And of course, you know, people want to privatize that, and that's even worse. That's just going to be even worse. But, yeah, I actually – it never occurred to me because of where I grew up. One of my white friends was saying the other day something like she didn't know that there were different tribes. I just – so I couldn't even imagine that. Like, not only do I know – like, I'm Apache. I'm also Chiricahua. And then there's my family name. And, you know, it's the same for the two other tribes I am. And so it's – I just can't even – it's hard for me to imagine.
0: Could you – imagine writing a protagonist that wasn't native
2: i wonder why people ask people of color that i don't know i wish because what's weird is when people they never ask white people that but white people are like of course i can write whatever i want and it doesn't matter because i'm an artiste um but i don't see why it matters either way you know i write about like most people poetically and imaginatively what i know and right now i'm writing a sci-fi novel you know um and the character has things in common with me, and things not in common with me.
0: I I ask because I think it's a difficult thing to do, no matter what race you are. Um, I've read very few books where where authors have been able to pull it off well, where you you couldn't really tell what race or even sex the person was. Uh, I read before I read uh, Crazy Horse's girlfriend. I read an, uh, Another Country by James Baldwin, and that. Oh, yeah that book blew me away. And if I didn't know who Baldwin was, I, I wouldn't know where to start to guess where he was from. And, and I think that shows a real quality about the work. And I think it's, it's daring to, to, to try to embody somebody else's skin and try to do it well.
2: Baldwin though, I love Baldwin, and Baldwin had a lot of um, pain associated with his sexuality. And so he was, you know, being a black gay man, he kind of did a weird thing where he tried to separate that. And so his white characters were gay, his gay characters were white and his black characters were straight most times. And I think it's because he just had a lot of pain in that regard. For me, it's not as much about politics, although, of course, that's there. It's about craft. Like, I'm also a professor. And it's about, like, I have to walk in a white world in order to have a job and if you're white you do not have to walk in a native world to survive you don't ever have, people have lived and died in this country not knowing that natives still exist and that's a difference i think that's why theoretically you know and i do have white characters that probably are pretty well crafted whereas you know i think if you're white you know i get these emails all the time can i write about indians and i'm like you can do whatever you want and you will get published and probably i won't because people love that stuff they love all that stereotypical stuff it's so pleasing
1: yeah i mean it's i, I, w- I, I don't well <laughs> I, don't I mean the, the, only, the only book that i can think of off the top of my head was dorothy <coughs> hughes the expendable man which is a very clever crime story which you don't realize that the protagonist is black until about halfway through the book but i mean she was a master of crime fiction
3: jamie was she the one that wrote the first book about of- from the perspective of a serial killer yes, in a lonely place i was just got that at the library that. i just ordered that yeah, it's mm-hmm. a piece the, she was a genius and kind
1: of a forgotten genius unfortunately which also speaks we've spoken about this a lot in the show how female authors tend to have their day and then unfortunately be forgotten about yeah. which is another whole issue entirely but i mean this is a conversation that i think is a national one that we're having i mean we're in a very unusual moment with our federal government with uh, obviously a deadly uh, riot in charlottesville virginia A lot of discussion about what it means to be an American, what it means to be um, confronted with racial issues. Um, It's interesting that a lot of this stuff. I mean, I guess the the only good I can see out of the current cultural moment we're having is some people are actually now finally talking about it because things that people have said for years about white privilege or the fact that, uh, as you've just mentioned, a lot of people who are share my skin color don't necessarily have to think about this kind of stuff, Uh, and people. Who are not this can color, have to think about it every day. So at least that's finally being brought to the forefront and people are actually having a serious conversation about it.
3: Which brings me to my question. So I was uh, in, in an interview I read with you, you were talking about how um, you're having some difficulty getting Crazy Horse's girlfriend published because it was too dark. And it's uh, they call me the Malcontent because I love just dark and uh, it's I mean, not the it's only defin- reason we call you the Malcontent. Yeah, there's, <laughs> many, yeah, there's many reasons, yes. But you know, this is a dark novel, but I mean, I read stuff that it's just, you know, and it, and it, do you think it's, there's a racial perspective behind it? Or is it because you're a, a woman, they're like, oh, you know, it's not going to publish because I mean, I I use Chuck Palahniuk because he writes dark stuff. I, I think he's a one trick pony. And I, I, I liked Fight Club and everything after that I thought was pretty much garbage, yeah, yeah. but it's dark stuff. You know what I mean? And there's like, uh, you've got this new well, it's not new, but they call it new. It's like Gritlet, the southern, like, you know, meth yes. lab fighter guy. The You know, this, it's all very masculine. Yeah. Do you think that's, you know, part of the reason? Or do you just think people thought because it's about kids?
2: I know. I think um, I emailed Donald Pollack actually um, nicely blurbed the, uh, Crazy Horse's girlfriend. And why is because I emailed him. And I I knew he'd understand my world. And I find that really interesting that working class white guys are allowed to be dark and people almost egg them on. There's something kind of there. And whereas women of color, we're we're scary if we're violent, we're scary if we're dark. And what's ironic is that novel is actually some of the least dark of my material, especially if you read Buckskin Cocaine. And I think that absolutely, I think um, Publishers Weekly called it vulgar. And I remember Jacob Nabb, um, who was my editor chief in the Times, like, where did they find the time machine to get this guy to come back from 1955 to review your novel? Yeah, it's... And it's just so funny. I don't know why, but people just, you know, this, this you know, anything from a... Pro- like, I'm, I'm criticized for it. And in fact, my agent was trying to sell my book about native gangs, and now it's called Ina and which means life actually navajo and it was at the time called matthew and they were like it's too dark and i just can't handle it and all i could see on my timeline on social media was like all of my white male peers being lauded for how dark they were willing to be
3: is that a book about native gangs is that being published
2: probably by suny it's um it's about to go to peer review but my it's kind of you know suny was negotiating with my agent to make sure that the contract was it was a whole thing that i blah, don't know much about
3: that sounds right up my alley like that sounds like it would be amazing because i've always dark book. i've oh, well, i've always been really fascinated by gang culture um all the way back you know from you know yeah. pre-prohibition and um I have some friends that are gangbanger, ex gangbangers, and I just, you know, it's always been fascinating. So if you do get it published, shoot me an email because I'd like to read it.
1: I will, I will. We got to take a break right here, but we're going to return. Actually, we're going to come out of the break with another reading from Buckskin Cocaine by Erica Wirth. We'll be right back.
4: You're never going to leave your daddy, are you? Dad asked, and I squirmed. I was 12 and practicing barre while watching a video of Swan Lake. Dad had found some materials for a makeshift barre at the junkyard outside of town and had nailed it up on the side of the living room wall. He had even taken our carpet out and put wood floors in, another find from the junkyard. The video and the VHS had been acquired from the thrift store we liked to browse through on Saturday afternoons. I liked those afternoons, looking through junk, through all the racks and racks of dusty-smelling clothes. I was good at finding things that looked nice on me, and Daddy was good at finding things he could fix up. The TV had been given to us by one of the guys Daddy played cards with on Friday nights. Occasionally, white lines would run through the screen, but it wasn't that bad. And my teacher, who I loved dearly, gave me all of her videotapes to watch and practice with. I had started Point the year before and I was getting so good that my teacher was already talking New York, talking professional. She even let me come into the studios on Sunday when she wasn't busy. We would run through routines and she would correct me, shape my body, my mind. It was all I thought about. She had looked at me one Sunday, her lean body taut in the small wooden chair she was sitting in, her left hand massaging a sore foot. She stopped massaging and laughed, watching me practice a sober soul. You love this too much. It'll be the death of you, you know. Dad was sitting at the kitchen table, a cup of coffee in his big, rough brown hand, the Denver Post in the other. Of course not, Dad, but I have to grow up, I said, my left hand on the barre, my right leg executing a round de jambe. It was one of my favorite actions at the barre. They were so elegant and precise all neatly tied up, the legs strict and straight, and elegantly curving into a half circle on the floor. No, I don't want that either. I stopped dancing and looked over at him. You're silly, Dad. He looked over at me and said something in Chicksaw that I didn't understand. He would try to teach me a few words and I remembered some, but all of the natives around me were Navajo or Lakota or some Oklahoma mix like me. So what I knew in Indian was a mashup. I understood more Spanish than anything in Chicksaw. I smiled at him, and he looked sad then, like I'd already grown up and left, like I was already far away. I went over and hugged him hard, and he held me, stroked my hair. Then he got up and made some more coffee. He stood at the window while it brewed, staring out at the gray, snow-covered streets, the light falling, the shadows on his face like a dream.
1: Welcome back. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. I'm Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by... Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack. This is I-94, and we are with the author, Erica Worth, author of Buckskin Cocaine. That was just a reading uh, from midway through her book. Um, Erica, take us through a little bit of that scene, if you don't mind.
2: Uh, that particular story is about um, a young woman who kind of is threaded throughout all the stories, and then there's a novella at the end. And Olivia is from Denver, and, you know, her dad is raising her. Her mom is gone. And she's just like, I am going to be a professional dancer. I'm going to be an artist at any cost. I just don't care what it takes. And that particular moment, she's um, with her father, who she loves, and who's just a regular dude who's ready to facilitate her dreams. Um, and she's—he's so much so that he's affixed a bar to their tiny little apartment in Denver um, because she wants to be a dancer so badly. And she's sort of, you know, practicing and practicing as she always is. And it's a moment, I think, in some ways where it's a flash forward because she knows um, and he knows that she will leave and that she is in some ways nothing like him.
3: I had a question. Um, or in, I'm sorry, it's not about the reading, but I noticed you have Marguerite tattooed on your hand. Oh, yeah. Marguerite, the yeah. protagonist in Crazy Horse's Girlfriend. Um, and I know you probably hate this question, but is it in any shape way or form, somewhat autobiographical. I know we write. Yeah. I know we write about what we know, so
2: In Crazy Versus Girlfriend what I wanted to do is now I think it would be called a YA, but it was another one that was just so gritty. I'm not sure it really falls very easily there. Um but I wanted to base that character a bit off of my best friend from high school, um, my sister, a lot of girls, like eighty percent is just a lot of girls from high school, um, because I was like a nerd. I just read dragon books. And she, of course, is a drug dealer And gets pregnant. And I just, you know, I was like, drugs are bad, you know, and dragons are good. And (laughs) so I, you know, it's not autobiographical in that way. However, this is my grandmother's name. And uh, she was completely native, except I think for a bit of French. And then her husband, he's a sort of a question mark. He was probably native and maybe black, but passed as white. And my grandmother was a very just, you know, um, I guess the word spiritual is the right word for her. Very interesting you know she wasn't a yuck yuck indian i call those folks um she was she was not particularly funny um and a lot of natives are um but she was very serious and interesting and so in some ways she has nothing in common with marguerite but i wanted to kind of the character is an homage to her and in some ways still was the
1: character of olivia based on you
2: yeah yeah i hate admitting that though but yes. yes
1: so what what parts if you don't mind me asking was this were you uh really into ballet as a kid and uh
2: my mom owned a dance studio okay and I was a horrible dancer okay um to the point where my mom was like I don't know that one you know she's a strange kid
3: <laughs> <laughs> she's weird well I come from a whole family everyone's in the trades so uh-huh. like I, I'm from Detroit area and everyone's in the trades they either work for GM for it uh-huh. or they're electricians and I'm a librarian so they were and I was a punk rocker so they were just like I don't know this kid <laughs> this is but you know so,
2: my mom you know she's from texas her family kind of like a lot of indian families i think some of them are just from northern mexico but a lot like a lot of indians were shoveled into oklahoma and then they actually long story short they ended up in texas for jobs and they worked on ranches they worked in factories and my mom then we you know she met my father was a white dude from staten island and then i grew up in the denver area and olivia you know, I felt like a lot of people are not really talking about Denver as a place where Indians live. And I've spent a lot of time there as somebody who grew up right outside of it. And there's a lot of urban Indians there. I had no idea. So, yeah. 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 You know, it's in fact, it's what did Sterling Harjo say once? It was like the great crossroads for Indians, something. I can't remember. It was really great. But Olivia, in some ways, has nothing in common with me. Yet again, she's very cool. She's very composed. She was very thin. I was kind of fat growing up. And, um, you know, I go back and forth in that way. Um And she is super determined. But I think that parts of what she experiences in New Mexico were parts of what I experienced. Um, And just sort of being not in the film world, but being around those guys is what she has in common with me. And just that determination. I was very determined to be a writer. I had no idea what it was going to entail, but I was very determined. So
0: You you mentioned your grandmother being spiritual. And in Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, there's... um a few mentionings of Native American church. Marguerite's aunt right. is an attendee, and I—I I don't. that's something I, I don't know anything about. Could you talk about that a little? I
2: think that spirituality, when it comes to Native Americans, is so touchy a subject for us because mm-hmm. everyone wants to commodify it and use it, and it's private, and it's not our... There's no word in most Native languages that separates culture from <clears throat> religion. There's no really word for either one of those things. And so the idea is that whatever... Mm-hmm whatever you're coming from organically, that should be spiritually, you know, part of who you are. You can't convert to Native American church, although there are non-Native attendees. Um, And I think what we know of a Native American spirituality, that's why people are so about it when they're Native, because there are people who just love to capitulate to it, right, or will one way or another because it's sellable. But for the rest of us, you know, at what what you really end up doing at Sundance or at Native American Church is so radically different from anything that people know about that. Um, and my grandmother actually was living in a time when it was illegal to practice Native religions. Like people don't understand that. It was Ill- illegal until 1980-something. I- I'm not even sure. My my boyfriend says political science, so he knows. And so she wasn't allowed to do a lot of things that, you know, she she might have wanted to do and she was in a in a catholic she didn't go to boarding schools like a lot of indians but she went to a catholic day school because she was an urban indian same thing raised by irish or um run by irish irish nuns she was sort of catholicized and so as as she got older she was trying to like come back to um native practices so
3: was there like a movement to try and convert native americans to like you know Catholicism or just, oh, yeah. you know, our
2: standard yeah, the religion. French Jesuits
3: started, that started early. I
2: and mean, that's just called America. Really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were, you know, obviously this genocide, which people point out that smallpox is kind of not folks' fault, except that's not true because people, when they realized that that was something we did not have any immunity to or any experience with, they would like powder it and put it in blankets and give them to us. They would put sling dead bodies into our, our towns and, I mean, you know, and even Mexico which was a thriving native civilization, and people forget that. That's one of the places where civilization first arose, just were were decimated by smallpox. And so when that happened, when that was ultimately and you know, their wars and everything was like sort of like winding down, they corralled most native children, took them from their parents by force. And put them in boarding schools. Or if they were urban, like my grandmother, they just enrolled them in Catholic schools and taught them how to not be Indian by beating them. If they spoke their languages, the nuns would often um, molest them. They came home with those problems and <sighs> you know taught them that they were um, what, dirty and gross. And that the only way to save themselves was to think of themselves as lesser Americans and get a manual labor job. And marry out
3: Make America great again Yeah, Yeah.
2: exactly
1: We're running a little short on time But we have one more excerpt that we want to play From Erica Wirth's book here uh, Before we uh, get to our final questions This is uh, from the very end of the book When Olivia's father actually uh, passes away And uh, she learns of this uh, from her roommate So we'll be back in a couple seconds after this reading
4: My roommate was out when I got the call It was one of my aunties and she was crying I looked out of the window of my apartment The sun was shining. It was almost always shining in New Mexico. There were birds and they were talking. I felt faint. I sat down to listen to her say it in her lilting Oklahoma accent. Have to go, I said faintly, dropping the phone and not bothering to put it on the hook. I could hear my auntie calling my name in the background, but it felt like I had been suddenly sunk under thousands of miles of ocean, like I was suddenly upside down. And as I made my way to the toilet, lurching from side to side like a broken toy, I began to tear up my arms and wail, and I vomited on the floor before I could even get to the bathroom. An hour later, after I had gotten the pint of cheap vodka out of the kitchen and crawled into bed with it, my roommate came in, though I didn't hear her until she got to the bedroom. Olivia, are you crying? she asked. I looked at her, trying to answer there's vomit on the floor and the phone was off the hook what's oh oh god it's your father isn't it oh god she went to me and held me as i shook and cried she pet my hair and tried to take the vodka from me after some time she got up and i could hear her cleaning the floor could hear her in the kitchen she came in with soup and i shook my head olivia you must eat and i'm taking the vodka have some water too she said, and I let her take the vodka. I had been crying for so long I had begun to go numb, and then it would start all over again, the pain. I took the glass of water out of her hand and then the soup and let her pet my head while I ate and drank, though it felt like my throat was closing up with every bit of liquid I tried to force down. She took my hand and led me to the living room and turned on the TV. She wrapped me in a blanket, my daddy's Pendleton that he'd given me when I went away to college and let me cry and then finally sleep. Daddy had been at the hospital, mopping the floors. When a man had come in, they hadn't seen the gun. When he pulled it out, as they began to wheel him towards surgery, people screamed and daddy dropped his mop and walked over to see what was going on to see if he could help. Daddy was always one to help. He was well liked on the job. The man began waving the gun and it went off. My roommate called Dancing Earth my studio and told them what had happened and they were very sympathetic. I took two weeks during which time I went home for daddy's funeral. They were going to bury him in Oklahoma, in Ada where he'd been born. I wondered if my mother would show up but nobody knew where she was and though I looked around for a woman who looked like me at the funeral, a tall, light-skinned woman standing on a little yellow hill dressed in black. There was no one like that, and I went home soon after.
1: Welcome back. So, pretty powerful scene at the end of, of this Slim Novel. Could you tell us a little bit about where this is going and, and why? what happens here?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you picked that section. A lot of the um, collection... Since I really wasn't writing poetry anymore, I thought what I would do is borrow from poetic technique and use that, like, you know, repetition, um, for example, in the uh, collection. But that particular novella, although there's not a ton of dialogue, there's a lot of internal monologue, a lot of description, is probably the most traditionally written part of it. And that character, her father is, like I said earlier, the only part of her that I think she allows in her life to be you know authentic in the sense of like who she is as a human being and who she's not who she's trying to be and who she's hardened herself to be, and when he dies, that part of her kind of goes away, and then she has nothing left and so when she goes home actually for the funeral to Oklahoma and then to Denver home home for her um you know her her mom is gone, she's never met her, and she wonders if she's there, and what she ends up doing actually is is uh, calling the um boy that she abandoned um who was her first and only real love um and seeing if you know if he's around and she kind of has this hope that you know he might still be single but he's he's uh he's married and he says we'll come and hang out and she's like oh I got to get going so
0: that seems to be a recurring theme that was sort of a theme in in Crazy Horse's girlfriend um uh. A little bit with marguerite and and Mike, yeah, I guess you could say he was her
3: first love. is it pronounced yeah. marguerite
0: marguerite
3: oh marguerite okay um,
2: it, you know it's a margarita, Marguerite, Margaret in English, you okay. know, so and my grandma went occasionally, i think by maret margarita, but mainly Marguerite by from the French.
3: So. I'm really bad at pronouncing things. Yeah, it's so okay. We, me too. We butcher a lot We have a lot of uh, books in translation on the show. <laughs> we're just like, we're going to slaughter this. but yeah. you know,
2: yeah. so. I'm okay at Anishinaabe, but it's like German yeah. <laughs> that I murder, you know?
3: <laughs> we're equal
1: opportunity murderers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, we're running out of time. We want to leave. You got any final thoughts for us, Erica? Thank you so much, first of all, for coming out thank and speaking you, to oh. us today. Thank really thank you appreciate it. for having me. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Thanks. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with?
2: Uh, You know, essentially, you know, I know everybody says it, but, you know, like any other literature, Native literature is so broad. And I just hope people do um, not do a checkmark thing. I think, for example, Lynxon Hughes gets that in black literature, like, oh, I've read this black poet and I'm done. And there's so much more to him. There's so much more to black American poetry. And it's the same with Native literature. My God, there's so much. I don't mean to pick on him, but there's so much more than Sherman Alexi. I know he's a good yuck yuck Indian, but there are just I a billion more him. of us.
3: I <laughs> love him personally, but, but hey, yeah, there's
2: everyone does. There's a reason. His especially early work was powerful and funny and he is too.
3: Well and that's so. why you know, that's why you're on the show because we wanna uh, expose people to literature outside the box and, and sometimes people are like, That's so outside the box I'll never read it but other times, you know, this is right. this stuff isn't um it's not inaccessible. You don't have to no, be, you don't have to be any particular but group you have of Mensa any, member. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 for everybody. It's not for natives. So I just we just you know, this that's what the show's all about. So
2: I mean just like any author, right? Like I'm just writing or poetically and imaginatively about what I know. And I think it's the job of the author to make you relate. You know, you don't have to worry if, you know, if they're, if they're doing a bad job, you won't relate. It really doesn't matter who is what from either side.
1: Well, thank you, everybody, for this latest edition of I-94. I want to remind everybody that, once again, we will be live at Pilson Community Books on Thursday, the 31st. That's at 7 o'clock in the evening. And our next show, you'll be able to hear that on September 3rd. Then our next show after that, I believe, is not until the 17th. Am I right about that? 17? 24th. 20th. 24th. It's 24th. And yeah. that is partly because we are making way, actually, for the show that is going to follow us. Stick around because This Is Hell <laughs> is up next. want to thank everybody, International Anthem Recording Company, The Voice of God, and you, Erica Wirth. Thank you for coming down. Thanks, Erica. Appreciate thank you. it. Thanks, You've been listening Erica. to I-94. You, this is Lumpin' Radio.
4: I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured author Erica Wirth and her book Buckskin Cocaine from Astrophil Press. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.